Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do give you all the glory. We give you everything that we can, everything you've given to us. God, we need your word today. We really need your word. Any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away, but may your word remain. In Jesus' name we pray. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Today in our Advent series, which is called Renewed, we come to the topic of renewed joy. Renewed joy. Two Sundays ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, I preached about a topic that is kind of seemingly far from joy. Penitence. Renewed penitence. Renewed penitence leads to what Father Carl addressed last week, which is renewed comfort. This morning on the third Sunday of Advent, as we sang in God Rescue Mary Gentlemen, we'll find that there's a connection between comfort and joy, tidings of comfort and joy. Renewed comfort leads to renewed joy. What does joy look like, I might ask? There are a couple of examples that come to my mind. Let me show you a couple of those. Go ahead with the first one. Aw, that's right. Aww. <laughs> it's a newly engaged couple. It's not new anymore. They're about to be married uh, in just two weeks. 13 days. It's exciting. <laughs> 13 days. Where's Elizabeth? There she is. He's counting. That's a good sign. It's a really good sign. Or right, the next one. It's the birth of a new baby. And this is baby Winnie Lloyd, who made a surprise appearance last Sunday, but there's sickness in the house, so we can't, we can't bless her this Sunday either, so hopefully next Sunday we'll be able to bless baby Winnie. What about this last one? This is the people of Matego Parish. When we pull up, having arrived from on the other side of the world, there's a lot of joy there, and they show it with their bodies in ways that you don't. <laughs> and I don't, let's be honest. And maybe shouldn't. And maybe shouldn't. If I were to put a picture of you up there and to say that it's emblematic of joy, what would it look like? Who would you be with? What would you be doing? Where would you be? On Thursday evening, I was putting my kids to bed, and I was praying for my son, Cohen. I don't remember the exact words that I said, but I know that I prayed something to the effect of this. Lord, bless my son, Cohen. Give him a good night's sleep, and please fill him with your love and your hope and your joy. Amen. As I finished praying, Cohen looked up at me and he said, Dad, you don't have to pray for my joy. I said, why not? He said, well, tomorrow's the last day of school before winter break. <laughs> That's my boy. Now, not every day can be the last day of school before winter break. Not every day will you welcome your brothers and sisters in Christ from the other side of the world. Not every day will you embrace your brand new baby, which is good because that's a lot of children. Not every day will you get married, also good. So where is joy to be found on the other days? Where do we find it? As we're doing throughout these four sermons in Advent, we're giving our attention to the appointed passages from the Old Testament. We're doing that on purpose because we're looking for signs that point to Jesus. Today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 65. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 25. I'd like to ask you to turn there in your Bibles and follow along. I think this is a way that we demonstrate our value of the Word of God 
by opening it up, by turning to it, and it also helps us to better engage with the passage at hand. So Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verse 17, so it's fresh in our minds. I want to go ahead and read for that again, read us for that, read that to us again now. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. The Lord is speaking. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days or the young man, for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The prophet Isaiah had a long ministry among the people of Israel, spanned many decades in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., and as prophets did, Isaiah was speaking God's word to the people, specifically in times of trouble. It was a troubled time. During Isaiah's ministry, Assyria brutally conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They would subject a people in a very vicious way, and they were threatening to do the same to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, this onslaught of warfare, it wasn't due to some defect in God's ability to protect and provide for his people. That's not why. It was because his people were at war with him by abandoning the covenant, by living lives of licentious immorality and idolatry. And so God allowed war to come into their land. And so Isaiah's ministry called the people to turn back to God and to trust in God's promises, and not just future promises, but promises about the present, about salvation here and now. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of the book of Isaiah to the revelation about Jesus the Messiah. In the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is quoted more than twice as much as any other major prophet, and more than all of the minor prophets combined. That's a lot. The fourth century church father, Jerome, says of Isaiah, he was more of an evangelist than a prophet because he described all of the mysteries of the church of Christ so vividly that you would assume he was not prophesying about the future, but rather was composing a history of past events. With this in mind, perhaps you've, you've already noticed as you listen to the words of Isaiah 65, you've noticed just how close it's related to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 21. That was written hundreds of years later. 
In this passage, our passage for today from Isaiah 65, Isaiah begins to lay out this vision for the restorative and recreative work that God intends for his people, and not just for them, but for the whole cosmos. New heavens and a new earth. It's a prophetic proclamation, which means it's a future time, speaking of a future time, with all things are going to be made right again. This is where we come in at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, why would this matter to the people that Isaiah is speaking to? Why would they care about what he's saying? Why would this vision stir up in their hearts joy? He says in verses 18 and 19, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Why would they think that's so grand? Well, fast forward a couple of millennia. Right now at this moment, do you think there's a great deal of joy in Jerusalem? Do you think that the people rejoice under the barrage of rocket fire in the skies? Do you think that the specter of Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis bring them delight? Or what about in Gaza? Do the people there rejoice in the rubble? Is there feasting around the tables of the Palestinians? War, with its conflict, its chaos, and its destruction, is a destroyer of joy. And warfare, both literal and figurative, both material and spiritual, has been creation's plight since Adam and Eve's first bite. Humanity is intimately acquainted with what joy does not look like. We know it. The people in present-day Israel and Gaza know it in a similar way that the people in Israel in Isaiah's day knew it, a very similar way. Isaiah knew the answer to that question as he had to live through that hellscape just like they did. And we, too, know what joy's absence looks like, even if not to the same degree. We know it. In case we can't imagine what joy isn't, though, Isaiah does spell out a few examples for us in verses 19b to 21. For example, joy does not look like the man who weeps uncontrollably due to the destruction of his livelihood. It doesn't look like that. Joy does not look like the cry of distress coming from a woman who's being sexually assaulted. It does not come from a newborn baby who dies from malnutrition or starvation. There's no joy there. Joy does not look like the elderly man who is about to celebrate his 90th birthday but is instead struck by a stray bullet. Joy does not look like these things. But Isaiah says, God's new heavens and new earth will no longer permit such tragedies. There's just no room for them anymore. There's only room for joy. And in the rest of the passage, Isaiah goes on to describe a glorious and poignant picture of the kind of joy that God intends to establish. Now, as a prophecy often is, it is not so much concerned with describing to us the exact details about what we should be able to see. Rather, it is giving us a truthful portrayal, even if it's incomprehensible to us, of what God's salvific actions will be like and what they will accomplish. 
So Isaiah portrays for us that in the new heavens and the new earth, the homes we build will be a perfect refuge. No threats. The things we cultivate will produce fruit for our perfect enjoyment. No theft. No waste. The work of our hands will achieve perfect fulfillment without frustration or futility. Amen to that one. Everything that is born is born for life eternal, not for death. Everything we speak to God will receive an answer. Everything that exists will exist in perfect harmony. Even wolves and lambs, even lions and oxen, even serpents and the heels of humanity. Not only will every day feel like the last day of school before winter break, school won't even exist. I added that last one. If those things were to come true, if they could come true, how would you feel? Imagine it for a moment. Which one of those do you resonate with the most? Certainly you resonate with all of them. How would you feel? That is a small taste of what the new creation will feel like. Now, if I said that we don't know what joy feels like now, that, that we don't experience any joy in our lives today, I'd be wrong. I've already given some examples of how we do experience joy. We, we know what joy is like from our own experience. And there are some ways in which the future joy that God promised, promises to us looks like some of those examples of joy right now. Maybe not so much that part about the animals not killing each other, although there are some adorable exceptions on YouTube. I can send those links to you. But we are able to find refuge in some things. We can find enjoyment in what we cultivate. We can find fulfillment in the work that we do. We can experience what life feels like. We can hear from God. We can experience harmony. So what's the difference between the joy that we experience now and the joy that God promises in the new creation. Today, our joy is fettered, it's diminished, and it's ceasing. It's fettered, it's diminished, and it's ceasing. When I think about one of the most joyful moments in my life, I think about the birth of my children. When Cohen, my eldest, was born 10 years ago, it was a grueling 24-hour natural labor for Christy. And as far as husbands go, I was about as hands-on involved as I could be. And as you well know, all of that pain and hard work came to a culminating moment when Cohen emerged into the world, and we were so, so joyful. But even that height of joy was fettered by how scared I was to be a dad. The joy I had was diminished by how tired we were and how tired we would continue to be for months and months and months. And that joy of being a new father and meeting my son for the first time, though it has not ceased for me, it has passed from my present experience into my memory so that I only access it when I try really hard. Mind you, this is one of my highest joys still fettered, diminished, and ceasing. Not so in God's promised future. Not so. The joy there will be unfettered, undiminished, and unceasing. 
Every detail, every moment, every sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, unfettered, undiminished, unceasing. Anglican theologian J.I. Packer writes, Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But it invariably does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There can be no better news than this. What's probably apparent to you already is that there is a connection between the joy that we will experience then and the joy we experience now. Last year, in my sermon on this Sunday, I said this, faith in future joy leads to present joy. When we believe in that future joy to come, we will invariably have the experience of present joy. If we genuinely believe that God is telling us the truth, that restoration is coming, we cannot help but have joy about it now. As true as that is today, and as much as it needs to be a part of our practice of joy, and yes, you must practice joy, it's not where I want to focus for the rest of our time today. Here's where I want to go with the rest of our time. It's towards this question. Do you think of God as a joyful God? Do you think of God as a joyful God? In the years after Judah's exile in Babylon, something we heard a lot about in our series on the book of Malachi just before Advent, there is a story in the book of Nehemiah about how after the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor addressed the people of the city in that context. Ezra, the priest, read from the book of the law as a way of reinitiating God's covenant with them. The walls were rebuilt. It's time to rebuild the covenant too. As the people listened to God's word, and as Ezra explained God's word to them as he read it, it says that the people began to weep. The reason they wept was twofold. First of all, it had been a really long time since they had experienced a reading from God's word like that. Some of them had never even experienced it at all. And second of all, hearing the law read made it obvious to them just how far from God's ways their sins had taken them. So they wept. And while it was a good thing for them to weep, both for the grief as well as the conviction, nevertheless, Nehemiah told them, don't weep. Not today. Don't weep. It says in chapter 8, verse 10, Nehemiah says this, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you hear that phrase, the joy of the Lord, how do you hear it? How do you understand it? I want to get into the grammatical weeds for just a moment. I'm asking you to stay with me. I think it'll be worth it on the other side. In the grammar of certain languages, there's something called the genitive case. Don't go to sleep. I promise. Stay with me. The genitive case. Yes, Mike, I'm talking to you. Essentially, these are nouns or pronouns which are in a case or a form which indicate possession or close association. So we go back to this phrase from Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord. In that phrase, the genitive is Lord. But it can be what's called an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Essentially, that is to say, Lord could be the object of the joy or it could be the subject of the joy. In other words, is what is meant by the joy of the Lord 
the joy that we have in the Lord? Or is it the Lord's joy? Most of the time, I think we interpret this as the joy, uh, that, that joy has the Lord as its object. So when Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, we understand it's our joy in the Lord that gives us strength. That's true. Yet what if the Lord is the subject? What if the most important part of this phrase is not that joy comes from the Lord, but that it is the Lord's own joy? Theologian Gordon Wong writes this, It is Yahweh's joy over his people that is the basis for the hope that they will be saved. Yahweh's joy. What might it mean if the joy of the Lord is first and foremost a reference to God's joy and only then secondarily and by result, our joy? With this in our minds, I want to take us back to the passage for today from Isaiah 65, and I want us to read verses 18 and 19 again. Listen, the Lord says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and I will be glad in my people. Now, certainly, God makes it clear that he wants his people to be a people of joy. That's why he made them. That's why he's remaking them. And he commands it, be glad and rejoice forever. But God also makes it clear that what he creates and recreates is for his own joy. I will rejoice. I will be glad. Do you think of God as a God who is joyful? Listen to what theologian Dallas Willard writes. He says, A joyous God fills the universe. Joy is the ultimate word describing God and his world. Creation was an act of joy, of delight in the goodness of what was done. It is precisely because God is like this and because we can know that he is like this that a life of full contentment, of joy, is possible. What he's essentially saying is because God is a joyful God, that's the reason we can have joy in him. Joy is found in God because it's God's joy. Joy exists in God. Do you think of God as a joyful God? It seems to me there are many caricatures or distorted images of God that lead people to believe that God is somehow not a God of joy. For example, some people see God as a controlling authoritarian. Some see God as an unwaveringly critical perfectionist. He's never happy. Others see God as a distant stoic. He's too unconcerned to feel joy. Or maybe God is an austere legislator. He's just serious and likes to craft laws. Some simply see God as the cosmic enemy of joy. He is for them a killjoy. As common, and I mean common, as common as these views might be, even among Christians, these do not faithfully represent the God of the Bible. They don't. Now, some of you might object. What about God's anger? What about his wrath? What about his judgment? Doesn't the Bible talk about these things as well? And the answer to that is yes, 
It absolutely does a lot. But the reality is that those things are only the characteristics of God which come in response to the spoiling of his joy. Had God's creation never fallen into disorder, disarray, there would be nothing but his joy and ours. And so what's interesting to consider is that at this moment in human history, even God's joy is fettered. Even God's joy is diminished. God himself experiences the internal contradiction that comes from a joyfully good creation and yet one that has been vandalized by evil. And this is why the passage in Isaiah 65 is so powerful. It's not just about us. It's about God. When God creates all things, when evil is done away with, all that's left for God to say is, be glad and rejoice forever. And that unfettered, undiminished, unceasing joy is God's. And it's available then to us. Today we're talking about renewed joy. And if we want to know where joy comes from, whether that's a new joy that you've never experienced because you don't know the God of joy, or whether that's the renewal of your Christian joy because you've forgotten, the answer is always that it comes from God. And more specifically, as I would point out today, it comes from God's joy. The wellspring of joy in the Godhead is where your joy comes from. And it raises a question in my mind. If we have a view of God that doesn't chiefly understand him to be a joyful God, how could we possibly have joy in him? If we don't understand God to be a joyful God, how could we have joy in him? It's quite possible that some of you here might struggle to genuinely believe that God is a joyful God. And as a result, it's also possible you might find it difficult to genuinely believe that God wants joy for you. In either case, I want you to hear and to believe the words of Isaiah 65 as something not just for God's people then, but for the people of God now, which includes you. God has gathered his church together to be a joy. He is making a new humanity to be a gladness. And God himself rejoices in his people. He's glad in them. It's not something that just applies to us as a corporate body and the church universal scattered around the world throughout time and space. It also applies to each and every individual member of it. As Paul says to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's the significance of that? Can you, can you hear the echoes of Isaiah's words? Be glad and rejoice in that which I create. What does God create? You. He remakes you. And he remakes me. It means that God rejoices in you. If you belong to Jesus, God rejoices in you. He rejoices in Blake and Elizabeth. He rejoices in Winnie. He rejoices in the Christians of Matego Parish. And he rejoices in the faces of those you see here gathered together to worship. The reason God sent his son Jesus Christ to span the distance between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, was because of his joy. His joyful love. 
such that on the night before he was brutally crucified, Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples what was going to happen and what it would mean. And in John 15, this is what he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Did you catch that? My joy. He's about to be executed, but my joy. Wow. Jesus wanted his joy, the joy that drove him to the cross, to be in them as their joy. Jesus wants his joy to be in you as your joy. New York Times columnist David Brooks speaks about the late pastor Tim Keller in an article entitled, Tim Keller Taught Me About Joy. He writes, Tim's happy and generous manner was based on the conviction that we are born wired to seek delight, and we can find it. Tim believed Jesus was putting himself into our lives, into our misery, and into our mortality so that we could be brought into his life, his joy, his immortality. Joy can be found, and it's found in Christ. The place we find joy, whether it's for the first time or whether it's a renewed joy, is in Jesus. It's the faith that, the faith that we have in the joyful gift of redemption that Jesus offers to us. And it is also a passionate apprenticeship to Jesus' joy. Are you an apprentice of Jesus' joy? That's a joy that's available to you today. It's not just then. Certainly it is in a way we can't comprehend, but it is today. It's available. It is yours for the receiving. Yours for the receiving. And the more you receive it now, the more of an apprentice to Jesus' joy, the more that when you are remade, you will understand what it's like, as C.S. Lewis writes, to find yourself remade and then, quote, drenched in joy. Drenched in joy. You'll be drenched in joy. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm afraid that I do not know what it's like to be drenched in joy. I'm probably not the only one. But I believe that's what's coming. And I believe that is true about your nature. And I believe that you love us. Grant us so to believe it and to be your disciples in joy that we might make ourselves ready for the day when it comes. In Christ's name we pray.